So I'm going to begin, um, as I think it's fitting, on a bit of a more somber note this morning. Um, and I, I pray by the time we get to the end, it, it will be a positive, strengthening word to you. But uh, I was driving with my father a little over, well, actually it was two weeks ago tomorrow. We were driving to Jackson, and my dad, who is entering his, he has entered his 10th, excuse me, ninth uh, decade of life, right? It's a lot of time to live. And we're driving the car, and, and he said something to me that, that just struck me and kind of, I don't know, sobered me. He said, you know, Danny, he says, um, I think, based upon everything that I see, I think I've probably lived in the better time of history in our country. And by that, he meant not right now. And, uh, you know, he's a, I respect my father. He's a, he's a, he's a level-headed person. He's sharp, and he's not given to extreme, you know, swings of, of thought. He's just a very analytical person. And when he said that, it again, just struck me. What he's saying is that things have changed and not for the good. And, you know, here's a guy who lived during the time of World War I. He saw the Korean War. He made it through the 60s and uh, Vietnam. And for him to be able to say, I think we are in some of the more difficult and complex and dark times in our nation's history. And I, I have to say, I, I agree with him. I, I, I feel it, and I think many of you do too. And that was before everything happened this, this last week. And and the horror show that that um, that took place in, in in Vegas, it just is a is a hard thing. Here we are, and yet you and you and me, we live in this time. We've been placed here, and and you can feel it's like there's there's big ropes, you know, like a tug of war in our country, and everybody's pulling at opposite ends, and you can you can feel it like ripping the fabric of our people apart. And and what I'm about to say, I'm not going to add any political judgment, simply statements, that you can feel the fringe groups of white supremacists and Antifa pulling. You can feel people who are passionately committed to the Second Amendment pulling, and people who are passionately committed to gun control pushing. You have people who love Donald Trump and people who hate Donald Trump, and a whole bunch of people in between pulling. There's immigration issues with people on both sides who are passionately pulling. And like I said, no political judgment at this point, not that some shouldn't be made about certain things. But you feel it. And it's, it's, it's just so filled with conflict. And how do we as followers of Jesus Christ like navigate this complex time with so much fragmentation and pulling and, and conflict? Well, the times in which Jesus was born, and this is kind of Honestly, just kind of a sermon for the sermon, though it does, does lead in, because I just felt like it needed to be said. The times in which Jesus were born are not dissimilar to ours. That is, he was born into a place of massive conflict where things were pulling at the core of who the people of Israel were. You know, you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were not friends and often fought. You had the Roman loyalists and you had the Jewish zealots who'd be willing to murder for, for the freedom of their country. You had Roman citizens and Roman military centurions, and you had Herodians who were, who were deeply and passionately committed to their leader, Herod. It's like he had all of this going on in the first century, all pulling. So Jesus was no stranger to this, and his first followers weren't strangers to this either. And it's in this context that Jesus says some amazing words that I, I think that my mind have, has gone back to over and over and over again, and I, I just want to commend them to you because how is it that we're supposed to navigate 
as followers of Jesus? How are we supposed to navigate? Well, Jesus gave this, it's more than advice, it's exhortation. Like, this is how I want you to live. He says, and this is a sense of warning or preparation for what's to come. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves devour, wolves tear apart, wolves destroy, wolves kill. How is it the follower of Jesus is supposed to live in a time of, of conflict and tearing apart? He says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise and innocent. Two amazing qualities that I think he offers to us. is that As you walk, I'm sending you out, and it's going to be a world that wants to tear you apart and tear itself apart. How are you supposed to walk with wisdom? Yeah, just, you need to be thoughtful. You don't just jump on the bandwagon with everybody else and react and end up doing something that's harmful instead of harmless. But rather, be wise, be thinking, be analytical. Work it through in your mind. Don't be stupid about it. Use the brain that God has given to you, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and be careful. At the same time, be harmless. When everybody else is reacting and wanting to hurt other people, that's time for you to walk in innocence. That, that to me, is too... Two words that we ought to lock into our head as we move forward into the future, all of us. Because he goes on to say what will happen. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. He says will. He doesn't say may. This is a, a certainty. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. For my name's sake. Walk with wisdom and to walk innocently. That's his word to us, all of it for his name's sake, which means at the end of the day, we have to keep in the forefront of our minds, and we have to declare, and we have to be solid on one main point. And I don't mean to seem unpatriotic in what I say, that ultimately our allegiance and our loyalty as followers of Jesus is not to a donkey, or an elephant, but to the lamb who was slain for us. That our ultimate loyalty and allegiance is not to our constitution or to the American flag, as precious as they are and ought to be to us, but to the kingdom of Christ who is Lord of lords, king of kings, and the only one who can restore order to the universe. That has to be at the forefront. Like, this is ultimately who I serve. Is there room for us to have political convictions? Absolutely. We live in the fabric of this culture and world, and we ought to think through them biblically and have them under the banner of the supremacy of the lordship and authority of Jesus who, is, who died for us. That's how we're supposed to walk. And I believe if that's our aim, and we're keeping that word wisdom and keeping that word innocent or harmless in mind, then I think we as a church, as a individuals are going to be able to better navigate this complex time in which we live. As well as a, a foundational truth that Exodus, I think, gives to us to help us navigate, right? Because at the place in the story we are is, is like Israel has left Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land. They're en route. They're in transition. They're in 
they're on a sojourn, as we are. We're, we're headed to a, another place. We're sojourners. And, and there's this truth that comes to light in this chapter that I think is bedrock for us. And it, and it comes down to this, the conviction that God, God's presence is right now abiding with us. That where the, the heart, the Christian heart, is actually convinced that God's presence is not only with but in us, behind us, before us, that is God is here, God is for us, God is with us, that that is the fundamental conviction that helps us to navigate dark, complex waters. Now, in this chapter, there are, there are two events that are linked together by a common location, Raphidim. These two events or two scenes um, are two threats to the people of Israel. One is the threat of thirst or death by thirst, and the other is the threat of death by war. And in both of these events, God is going to show himself both as provider and protector because his presence is with his people. Something that we have to, again, believe at the core recess of our being, that God is present with us as our provider and as our protector, the one who prevails through us. So the first event, the first part, which we're going to spend more time and then just a short time on the second event, first one is this danger of, of thirst. It's reminiscent of chapter 15. Some of you weren't here last week, but the people were thirsty and they grumbled and complained to Moses who is God's man. He's God's leader. In chapter 17, it's worse. They come to a place called Raphidim, where both of these events take place. And again, it's a place without water. And for those who are joining us, there are two plus million people with elderly and with infants and livestock and cattle. That's, that's not a good thing. There's no water. It's a desperate time. And so the people come to Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? That's, this is the grumbling and this is the complaining that we've seen before. But it's worse than that this time. Because Moses goes on to say something that implies that he feels like his life is threatened. He says, they are almost ready to stone me. That is, I have a mutiny on my hands. If you're on a ship and this was happening, I'm, 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 there's a mutiny going on. Like They, they want to kill me. Now, if anybody said, hey, does anybody want to take Moses' position here as leader over God's people who don't like him and want to kill him to lead him into battle against people who want to kill him too? I'd say no one wants Moses' position. They're ready to stone me. So the people are in rebellion. There is a mutiny going on. And at the core of it, like underneath it all, why, why the grumbling, why this agitation, why this mutiny? is their doubt about the presence of the Lord with them. Look closely at verse 7. Moses names the place where this happens because of what's going on. It says, and Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, which uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, and here's the test, they're testing the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? And the sense of that question is meant to be answered negatively. It's like, no, he's not with us. If the Lord was with us, we wouldn't have a water shortage. But we have a water shortage, so the Lord isn't with us. His presence is with us. We're alone. We're abandoned. We're neglected. He brought us out here, and he took a vacation or something. He's not here. That's the sense. 
And that's, that's the core. That's the heart of why they're complaining. They've lost faith that God is present with them. Because they look at the circumstances of what's going on, the water shortage, and they think water shortage and God's presence don't compute. They don't go to bed together. And that, that is a perennial tendency and vulnerability for us as well. Is to look at negative circumstances of life. And based on those negative circumstances, to come to the conclusion that because of those negative circumstances, God's not present. I mean, the logic is simple. If God were good or he was here, there would be water. There's no water, so God is neither good or maybe he's not here. If God was in Vegas, shots wouldn't have been fired and people wouldn't have been killed. But because shots were fired and people killed, God is either not good, he's not present, or maybe he doesn't even exist. And in doing this, what we do is we form conclusions about reality based upon our experience and on our negative circumstances. That's what they're doing. They have come to the theological conclusion that God is not with them because of their circumstances. And they just make this observation. Never should negative circumstances or our experience of them determine reality, especially as it relates to God. Our, our circumstances, our experiences, and our interpretation of them are so limited. The young girl grows up in a family where her father is constantly verbally and physically abusive of her, and that's all she's experienced of, of a father. If she comes to the conclusion that if all my experience and all of my circumstances teach me that my father's a bad person, that every other father is a bad person, there's... You see, it doesn't follow to judge reality based upon one's own limited experience or circumstances. There are good fathers out there. But we have a tendency, a tendency to judge reality based upon our experience or judge who God is or isn't based upon circumstances. And again, that's something we mustn't do. We can't allow our circumstances to determine reality about God. We can't allow what happens in life to be the foundation of our belief system. Rather, there has to be something bigger than our own collective experience and our ability to interpret it correctly, which I don't think we can. We're just too limited and too finite. But rather, the, the, the scripture would have us go, listen, you trust what God has laid out for you. Trust what his word says to you. That's that's, a, that's a, a firm foundation because his perspective is, is perfect and is, is, um, is the divine one. So, so anchor your thoughts about reality on that, not your experience. And I know there's, if right here in this room, if everyone was to like, be completely and utterly transparent about their life and history, there would be a lot of pain here. Things that have happened in childhood, things in marriage things that you don't like to talk about or think about, and, and maybe this morning you're one of those people who's like, you know, based upon what I've experienced in my life, I, I, don't, I don't believe that God is good or he's even there. And I would just ask you, do you want your limited experience and circumstances to determine what you believe about reality? Because it may be way off. Because theirs were way off. Because God was present despite the fact that they, they couldn't make sense of it. There's this, this instruction that the Lord gives. Now, mind you, this is a mutiny. And they're not just 
They're not just rebelling against Moses, they're rebelling against the Lord. Now, God had every right at this point to reach down to that big button called judgment and blast them to hell. At any moment, just poof. But he doesn't. He does something here that reveals his heart of love and mercy to his people. Look, what, look at this. this. This stuff, I'm juiced about what we're about to read. That means I'm excited, okay? It says, and the Lord, Yahweh, capitals means sacred name, said to Moses, here's the instruction, in the middle of mutiny, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel as witnesses, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So here's this instruction. Pay careful attention. Just take that staff. And he relates it specifically to striking the Nile as one of the plagues. You remember what happened when Moses struck the Nile with the staff? It turned to blood and everything died. That is complete destruction and death. The striking by the staff of the Nile was an act of judgment, right? It says, take that staff, which striking the water was an act of judgment. And I'll tell you what, I want you to walk up to a rock. And I will stand on that rock. And you will strike that rock. And water will come out and people will live. Let's think about this for a second. All right? Visualize. There's a metal plate up here. You can't see it, but you can hear it. Let's just say this is the rock. And Yahweh says, I'm going to put my presence on this rock. Moses, I want you to take that staff of judgment and death, and I want you to strike the rock with it. Who is he striking? Oh, come on. The Lord is on the rock. He strikes the rock. He's striking the Lord. That is, the staff of judgment is coming down on the presence of the Lord. Now, that should sound vaguely familiar. Where judgment comes down upon the Lord... And life flows out. This is so true to what God did at the cross that the Apostle Paul read this very passage and he said, man, this, this is referring ultimately not just to a, the striking of a rock or striking of Yahweh. This is his way of saying the only way to life is for God to strike someone down so that someone could go free which is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. He, he realized this rock is Christ. And see, there's these things that theologians call typologies in the Bible. That is, they're just little analogies or pictures that are set in history of patterns in the way in which God is going to work in the future. They are prophetic. And there's lots of them. You know, the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple. Those were all analogies or pictures of what God would ultimately do in the coming of the Christ. And here's one of them. It's like, Yahweh says, take the staff of judgment and, and strike the rock. Strike where I stand. And life will come out. That's, that's the gospel and that's Christ, right? Where, where the hammer fell. Where the one who was innocent was struck down so that those who were guilty could go free. Right here. That's like, this is awesome stuff. This is all the way back in Exodus. In other words, God is saying, you don't think I'm with you? You think I've abandoned you? 
because you have a temporal water shortage. Well, let me just display in symbolic form just how much I am committed to you and how much I do love you. I will be struck down so that you can live. Or maybe that's just too familiar of language for you. It needs to be refreshed by contemporary analogies, right? Some of you have read and heard the the hero stories that came out of Las Vegas, and one of them that caught my attention and just made me want to cry. Story of Jack and Lori Beaton. They were down in Las Vegas for their 23rd wedding anniversary. They've been with each other for a long time. You've got to look it up online because it's written better than I can say it. But when um, Jack realized that this, what was going on wasn't firecrackers and fireworks, but actually people were dying, he told his wife, Lori, get down on the ground. And then he proceeded to lay on top of her. And the last thing he said to her, the last thing she heard was, Lori, I love you. And she could feel the bullets going into her husband's body, and she felt his body go limp. Horrible tragedy. But what amazing display of love. Like the simple fact that a man would shield and take death so his wife could live. That's, there's just, is there any greater demonstration of love in the entire universe than a man lay down his life for his friend? And the answer is no. And the Lord is saying, saying, sometimes I realize the circumstances don't look like I'm here, but I'm here. And if you want to know how much I love you, you go back to the cross where I laid myself out over you to shield you from the wrath to come so that you could go free. No better love than that, people. And if you don't know him, you just, you don't know the God who comes personally and is struck down so that you could be forgiven and free. Man, there's, there's just not a better story out there. And the fact is, is it's like, this is history. This is, it's true. Embrace it as your own. It's the story of God's love for his people. And that's the point, right? As the rock is struck, the people live. Or as the sun is crucified, living waters come to us. That gives us eternal life, not only now, but in the the days ahead and after death, life. That's the first scene. What it teaches us about God is the provider. He provides even in the midst of rebellion because he loves and committed to his people. The second one, which is just a shorter time on, is is his protection of his people. Tom didn't read this one, so I will just read a small portion of it. But here we see God's presence amidst the threat of of, of war. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at uh, Raphidim, same place. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men And go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek uh, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, and he he uses both because it says it in verse 12, his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever his, his hands lowered, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, had him sit down, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. This is, this is a glorious weakness. <laughs> this is a glorious weakness because in the weakness of Moses' arms, 
God prevails. Just, I mean, these instructions, right? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18 gives more detail as to how this attack happened. But this group called Amalek, a nation or tribal nation, came and they attacked the caravan of Israel at the back. Like those who were stragglers, those who were weak, those who couldn't keep up. That is, they were killing people mercilessly and ruthlessly. So Moses says, guess what? Joshua, first time he's mentioned in the Bible. Joshua, get our men. Go down with your swords and take them down. And me, as a leader of the people, I'm going to go up on this hill. Strange thing. Go up on top of a hill where people can see me. And I'm going to raise up my hands. With a staff, the first scene, the staff comes down to strike the rock. And the second scene, the staff goes up to heaven as if to say, Lord, we need you. We need you to fight for us. And the very fact that their victory is tied to the raising of a man's, an 80-year-old man's weakened arms is a testament to the fact that the, the battle has always been the Lord's. And we've forgotten that over and over again. As the people of Israel forgot, so we forget that at the end of the day, the only thing that wins the victory is the power of the Lord. Early Jewish and early Christian um, interpreters understood this expression of raised hands as, as uh, an expression of prayer, of intercession. I was saying, Lord, without you, our armies will fail. And it's, like I said, it's a glorious weakness because he can't hold his 80-year-old arms up, and so he needs help from his community to help raise his arms. And I, I think there's something to be learned there that's intended Simply that God does conquer, he prevails through the weakness of prayer. As I notice I said weakness of prayer, and you might think, wow, you got that wrong. Prayer is powerful, Dan. It's like, well, actually, it's not prayer that's powerful. It's God that's powerful, right? Because prayer, if you think about it, at its heart, if it's true prayer, it is, it is a cry of desperation. I need I, I need help. We're being overwhelmed by an enemy. We don't have anything else but to call upon you, and we're sending our guys out with swords. So we need your help. That's this cry of desperation, an acknowledgement of weakness. But where the heart is looking in faith that, Lord, you're there. We know you love us. You know you care for us. You're the one who was struck down so that we could live. We're going to trust that you're going to come through and you're going to prevail. And, and, and that's exactly what happens. It prevails. See, as we make our way and navigate the complexity of our time, we have to be fully and completely confident that the Lord is actually with us. He's here, with us, in you. And there shouldn't be a spirit of fear. There should be a spirit of confidence. And there should be an expectation that he's going to provide the wisdom from on high, not from down low, so that we actually can live in a manner that is both wise and innocent. Right here, just God is amidst his people, providing and protecting them. And that church has is, 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 is got to be our conviction, has got to be at the heart of what we believe. God's not left us. He hasn't abandoned us in the 21st century. He's right here with us. And to go back to the cross and remember, yeah, that's, that's how much you love me. I trust you. And knowing that, Lord, you're here with us and we are going to continue to depend upon you and 
and, uh, and live in the reality that the battle is the Lord's. And as we actually live that out, the Lord does prevail. He brings people into his kingdom. He transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You know, I just have to say one more thing about this that's interesting. Is in this scene, the people are not passive. They're not. I mean, Moses could have said, listen, I'm going to go up on the hill and pray. And you guys, why don't you take 15, go over there, maybe, I don't know, roast a turkey or something and take the day off. Then say that. Joshua, you go down and fight. Now, there is a time in which the Lord says, hey, stop. I'm going to send out the choir or I'm just going to rain down hailstones and takes care of the whole thing. And the people kind of wait passively by. But it seems to me that the norm is that God calls us into the fight. Joshua, you go and we are going to petition that the Lord's power will accompany your sword and will prevail. Here you have action and petition side by side in a way that I think is healthy for us. We don't want to remain passive in the 21st century. That's not what we're talking about. But to recognize that God has called us to a mission, and the mission is not with a physical sword to hurt people. Our mission is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done in taking the blow so that we could go free, and that there's a world coming that's worth waiting for and living for. To take that to the nations and say, this is the truth, and to love the people around us as Christ loved us. That is our mission. And to do it boldly and confidently, engaging the world rather than running from it or remaining passive. Meanwhile, recognizing this battle belongs to the Lord. And may I say, just this is me, may not be you, but my dad's words to me, on the one hand, were kind of sad. I'll tell you what, though, what an exciting time to be a follower of Jesus. Right here, right now. I mean, there's a time in which you couldn't always tell the difference between a Christian and non-Christian, I'll tell you, the times are coming where it's going to cost you to be a follower of Jesus. And he's called us to engage in the fight, not a fight against people, but a fight for people. And how cool is it to live in this time where he's calling us, engage. Don't shrink back. Don't be a coward. Don't shut your lips, because I am with you. I pray that that encourages you this morning to just follow Jesus with your whole heart. And if you don't know him, man, I hope that you will come to see in Christ a love of God that is unbelievable. Father, I pray for this church family and just for wisdom for the part of all of us, um, leaders of our homes and leaders here at church, just leaders at work. You just grant us that wisdom to know how to walk and to walk with that confidence that you, your presence is with us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first in such an amazing, such an astounding way in Christ's name. Amen.